let me follow up uh, before the message to Amanda's announcement. The family day that we're having here is in lieu of family camp. And one of the things we want to be intentional about, because we're a church family, emphasis on family there, is being intentional about times just to get together and have fellowship. It's not just fun, you're, you're sharing life with other brothers and sisters in God's family as part of God's family here at Lion and Lamb. So don't write it off because it's an event in town or it's part of the day, it's important to us and so we hope you'll make time for that, it'll be a great time. And by the way, the gals, uh, Pam and Amanda and Patty Ann and the others who have taken over events for us have just done an amazing job on raising the level of all that. We're really appreciative of them. Yeah, let's join the, the boy in the pig pen there. Uh, Luke 15 has a story about things that have been lost and found, and coins have been lost and other things. But the big thing that's lost in Luke 15 is a son. And just briefly, it's one of the most famous stories in all the Bible, but briefly, if you've forgotten some of the key elements, Junior, the, the prodigal, lives in his father's household. He's blessed to be there. Father has some kind of wealth, at least. Junior decides that he wants to live in such a way that he knows he can't do that at his father's home. And so he takes his share of the inheritance, takes that money, leaves to a foreign land, and basically squanders it. He does all the things he couldn't do at home. He spends all his money. And once the money's all spent, he has no friends, he has no money, he has no resources, no place to turn, and he ends up as a pig farmer. Now, you know in the story, that's significant, isn't it? Can you imagine a Jew being in any other line of work that would be as bad as being a pig farmer. He says, in fact, the pigs eat better than he does. And so you've got this image, Junior was in dad's house, life was grand, he goes, he does his own thing, and life is less than grand. And among the pigs, life sort of at its lowest place, the text says in verse 17 that he came to himself. That's the way the ESV says it. He came to himself. We could say he came to his senses. Or we could use a, a single term and we could say he repented. So he's in a far country. He's far removed from dad. A dad that loves him, by the way, and wants nothing more than to have Junior back. And Junior comes to his senses. And that repentance means he has this conversation in his mind. He says, you know, even the servants at my dad's house, they have, they have plenty to eat. They're, they're taken care of. So I'm going to go back. I'll go to dad and I'll say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But would you take me back as a servant? He sees the wrong. He sees the, the digression away from dad's fellowship and blessing and all that life had to offer. And so he repents. He changes his mind. He has an appropriate sorrow for what he's done, the decisions he's made. And so he heads home. Now, Dad has always loved Junior. That has never changed. And Dad is, in fact, looking to see Junior return. He doesn't go looking for him, but he stands on the road waiting for Junior to reappear. And so when he does, Junior starts the speech, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And Dad sort of cuts him off and says, you're my son. My son who is dead has returned. And they slay the fatted calf, and they have the whole party, the whole family and the guests are around the table because the son that was lost has returned. So there's a digression away from the father and the abundance of his household. There's this 
scenario in which juniors come into grips with what it's like to have life apart from father. And then there's this repentance that helps lead him to life again. And where he ends up is where he wants to be, back in his father's household, so that the father can lavish the love and acceptance and joy he has in his son, on his son. That could not have happened, though, until there was repentance. We're in the last a message, 11th message in our Consider Job series, and we're talking about restoration this morning, but what you'll see is that restoration does not occur in Job's life until two key things have occurred before that. One is repentance and the other is forgiveness, and we'll look at both of those. But in Job's life, just like in the life of the prodigal, there is no restoration without repentance. And, as, and also for Job, there's no restoration apart from forgiveness also. Forgiveness received and then forgiveness given as well. So that's where we're going this morning. If you remember way back to the first message on Job, the introduction, we said one of the key emphasis of this book is the need for repentance in the life of the righteous. Now, on one hand, that sounds contradictory. But do you remember Job was described by God as righteous and blameless? And yet where everything leads in this story, 42 chapters long, is towards Job's repentance. And so it's clear in God's economy, the righteous need repentance just like everybody else. Because for you and I, we know if we're honest. In fact, I was just talking to someone right after Sunday school, before Sunday school. The longer you live, the more light of God's truth you have in yourself, the more sin you see in yourself. The more you see what God saved you from, what you were before. So the longer you walk with the Lord, the more visibility you have, the more ability to see your own faults, not only present, but what you were like when God saved you. And there's this deep and abiding sense of not only that I needed repentance, but every day I have this sense that I'm not ultimately where God wants me to be. God's still at work to form Christ in me. And that's what he's going to do in Job's life as well. So we need to see that repentance is a gift. You know, God's work in Job's life uh, was harsh. It was severe. When you think about what God allowed Satan to do to him and the loss of family, friends, health, status, was very severe, but it was a severe kindness. And Romans says, Paul says in Romans, God says through Paul in Romans that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. You and I may find ourselves in times where life is really, really hard, really, really painful. And in those times, we can at least say, Lord, do you want me to see something in my life to cleanse me out, to allow more of the life of Christ in me? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And it was God's kindness that was at work in Job's life in all that suffering because all of it led to repentance. Second Corinthians, Paul there says again, that God's kind of sorrow leads us to repentance. You ever talk to your child and they say, Dad, I'm sorry, Mom, I'm sorry. And you know they're sorry because they got caught. They're sorry because they don't want discipline. They're sorry for one reason or another, but they're not sorry because they're really sorry. But Paul says, no, God's kind of sorrow brings with it repentance, like you see in the life of the prodigal, and this morning, as we'll see in the life of Job. You know, Job's been a chatty fellow through the book that bears his name. He's, he speaks. He's given 20 chapters to speak 
from chapters 3 through 31 in those comments and commentaries between he and his friends. He has 20 chapters and he has a lot to say. So if you remember back, just hitting some of the high points, he sorrow about the day he was born. He wished he'd never been born, wished he'd never existed. And he doesn't like his friends and their accusations. And so he upbraids his friends. And he tells God how things are too. He, he wants to see God and have this confrontation and tell God how he's messed things up. So he diminishes God, he accuses God, he exalts his own sense of righteousness. He's had a lot to say for 20 chapters. And then Elihu shows up in chapter 32 and he reproves Job. And we said that Elihu appears to be God's side of things because God never reproves Elihu. And in fact, the things that God says in chapters 38 through 41 are some of the same things Elihu says. So Job's done talking basically at Job 31. Job 38, God comes into the picture. And uh, if you haven't read this recently, by the way, I hope through this series at some point you've read Job, but it's just masterful uh, display of God and his glory and who he is and, and what we are. You remember in chapters 38 and 39, God says, Job, I'm the one who put heavens and the earth together. Where were you? In infinity past, where were you? When I created the heavens and the earth, where were you? I know one thing and another. What do you know? Job, do you have a position from which you can even have a conversation with me that's meaningful about why I've allowed these things in your life? So that's 38 and 39. And then God takes a breath, so to speak. You remember he showed up in a whirlwind. This conversation is Job, the little man, and God towering above him as a whirlwind. And God takes a breath. And he says to Job, uh, will the fault finder, that's Job, contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer. So he says, Job, Here's your opportunity. Here I am. We're face to face. Let's have that conversation. I've, I've uh, started to set you right. I've reproved you. Now you reprove me. You tell me how things are. And this is what Job says. He says, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I say to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I won't answer even twice, and I will add nothing more. Job says, I've already said too much. I have nothing left to say. Because God's challenging him, how are you going to answer me? And Job says, I've already said too much. I'm not going to say anything now. So God goes through chapter 41. And after he's done reproving Job at chapter 42, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We've talked about the sovereignty of God in the book of Job. It's a key theme as well. This is a great verse when you're thinking about verses in the Bible where God describes what his power is like, that he's ultimately in control of all things. It's a comforting thought if you're a believer in Christ to know that none of God's good, holy, glorious plans for you can ever be thwarted. No purpose of God can be thwarted. Nothing and no one can upend God's plan for your life. Now, Job quotes what God had said back to God. He says, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's what God had said of Job. So Job says, I have uttered what I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Job says, I was talking out of my head. I, clearly what I had to say was not meaningful. He quotes God back to God again. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. That's what God said to Job. Job, you tell me how things are. 
And now this is Job's final response to God. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I knew something about you, or I thought I knew something about you. Heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I repent in dust and ashes. You remember Job is God's man. Four times God will call Job my servant. Job is the guy God's bragging on in heaven. But here Job says, what I knew of you was so inadequate that it's as if I knew nothing about you at all. I'd heard of you, I had a little knowledge, but now I've seen you, and so I repent in dust and ashes. And this is the thing, this is the beginning of Job's restoration. You remember the prodigal in the pig pen, he comes to his senses. It's like the light turns on. Here I am, what am I doing? Why, why am I living like this? Why should I keep on living like this? That's what happens to Job. The light comes on. He comes to his senses. He repents in that moment because now he sees God as he is, not as an idol. You know, this is a big trouble for us, isn't it? We reduce God. That's what Job had done to God. He diminished God. He'd elevated himself and he diminished God. And so he's made a version of God that Job can deal with. But then God really shows up, and by the way, not in his great glory, in, in a whirlwind, which Job was able to stand and interact with, but not in the fullness of his glory. And now Job's like, I never knew you at all. Never knew you at all. But that new knowledge is what brought repentance. And this is what you'll find. And this is why it's true for us, too. On the, on the front end of restoration, when you and I find ourselves in a place in life in which we know we're not where we want to be, we're not where God wants us to be, we want to get to a healthier, holier place, the front end of that is always repentance. You know, if you find yourself, as certainly I found myself, in times of despair or discouragement, you and I don't need, in which basically we're elevating our own feeling, our own sense of our own importance. We're diminishing God. We might be accusing God. God, you haven't done right by me. God, I wish you'd done this and not that. In those moments, we don't need comfort, though it's generally what we want. We need repentance because we're not going to be restored back to God into the fullness and joy of that fellowship apart from repentance. And this is what we need. So God's kindness, Romans 2 says, leads us to repentance. And that's what he did for Job. It's what happened to the prodigal as well. When you and I are out of sorts, what we really need is repentance. It's not comfort. Now, I don't know if you guys have seen this in your own life or in the lives of others around you. Uh, this can be a hard thing. Have you ever been in a situation like this or known someone else? Uh, there's sin in some relationship. A re uh, relationship could be parent to child or vice versa. Could be a good friend, family member, could be a brother or sister in the church. And there's sin on one side. Now, we're all sinners and we take that for granted, so I'm not saying that. But someone's sin has broken that fellowship. And you want to see that fellowship restored. And you pray for fellowship to be restored. And let's say it's an obvious sin in the other person's life. They're walking away from the Lord in some significant way that's clear. And so you pray, Lord, would you bring them to repentance? Would you turn them around? And you so want that fellowship to be restored that you're tempted to restore fellowship before there's been repentance. 
And what you get is a half version of repentance, and so you get a half version of restoration in life. And you'll see exactly that that is, that is what the prodigal's father, who was glad to lavish his love on him in restoration, refused to go meet him halfway. He didn't embrace Junior until Junior had repented and come all the way home. And what you'll find is we're tempted to get restoration without repentance because it's uncomfortable. We want those relationships restored. There's a passage in Jeremiah in the front end of that book in which God says what these people say is peace, peace, when there is no peace. And that's sometimes what we're tempted to do. It's the wrong thing to do. You've got to hold out. You don't want half-baked repentance because you don't want half-baked restoration. What you'll find is you'll end up with trouble and it will simply continue. So this isn't being hard. We want to be kind to others as God is kind to us. And real restoration requires real repentance. So on Job's path back to restoration, you first got repentance. Now there's another thing Job's going to have to go through before he gets to be restored fully to God, and it has to do with forgiveness, with forgiveness. The text does not explicitly say that God forgives Job, but we know he does because Job is restored and because God calls Job to act as a priest. We'll look at that in just a second. So Job 42, verses 7 through 10, God's reproving Job's friends, and he says this, Take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. Now, Job is now going to become their priest, their mediator. You remember the high priest, by the way, uh, before he'd go into the Holy of Holies. Do you remember what he had to do? He had to offer a sacrifice. One sacrifice was for his own sins. Then it was for the sins of the people. Well, that's sort of like Job here. Job has already been forgiven. Job can't go into God's presence to represent the three friends until he himself has been forgiven. Job has been forgiven. Now he's going to act as priest. God says this, and this is key, I will accept him. God says to the friends, I'm going to accept Job, so that I might not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Naamathite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. Does that sound strange? It's supposed to be about their restoration. Why does it keep saying God accepts Job? Now think of this for just a second. If Job is removed from their scene, what's their relationship to God? It's unrestored. Job is their priest. Job is their mediator. Take Job out of the equation. They have no standing before God. God accepts Job. And in accepting Job, he accepts them. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. So God's indicted Job's three friends. God has forgiven Job. And now God tells Job, now you're going to act as their mediator, their priest. They're going to offer the sacrifices and you're going to pray on their behalf for their restoration. You've been restored through repentance. They need to be restored as well. And that's going to happen through Job's uh, being their mediator. So if you notice at verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when it wasn't after repentance when he had prayed for his friends. Now this is interesting. Job has repented 
And so his relationship with God vertically has been taken care of. He's received forgiveness, but he's not restored at that point. God tells him, now, now you go and you forgive those who sinned against you. And when you do, you will be restored. Job's not restored before he forgives those who wronged him. Does this sound familiar? God has forgiven Job. Job must forgive others. You remember in the Lord's Prayer, by the way, which we sang in part in that opening song. Part of that prayer is, forgive us our trespasses. How? As we forgive those who trespass against us. When Christians pray today, our plea to God for forgiveness in a large way is, is predicated on our willingness to forgive others. Now, this is not about salvation. <laughs> Here's a, a, a brief uh, bunny trail. This is not about salvation. If you're God's child, you're always God's child. But what you'll find is what the prodigal found and is what Job found. When you're out of fellowship with your father, it's not a happy place to be. And if you're carrying unforgiveness towards someone else, what you're going to realize is this thing is eating me up. And I, th I think I'm okay with God, but God my Father says you're not okay with those around you. Job is not restored until he's repented to God. The vertical has been taken care of, and he's only restored after the horizontal has been taken care of, and the forgiveness he's received is the forgiveness he gives. God forgave Job. Job must forgive his friends. You know, there's nothing like uh, holding on to unforgiveness to make you a small, embittered uh, person who's worthless as far as being around to be encouraged. What you'll find, and, and if you find yourself at a place in life when you feel like, I feel estranged from God, I'm praying, but it seems like nothing's happened, I'm trying to draw near to God, and I don't see anything, it's at, we, it's at least worth asking God the question, Lord, in prayer, uh, Lord, is there some aspect of forgiveness that I'm failing to give? I know that I'm forgiven fully in you. Am I holding something against someone else? What you find is unforgiveness doesn't hurt anyone but us. And the bitterness that unforgiveness produces in us, it's like a cage around your soul. God hasn't changed. Other people may not have changed. But you are unable to experience restoration and grace and mercy because of the unforgiveness you're holding inside your own heart. And guys, a lot of times someone's hurt us and they've really hurt us. Someone's done wrong or evil and they've really done wrong or evil. But refusing to forgive them doesn't do a thing for us. It just leaves us on the hook, embittered and small, and without the ability to really appreciate all that God has for us. So Job is not restored until he's repented. The vertical restoration has occurred. And then until he's forgiven others, the horizontal is restored as well. Then we get to Job's restoration, chapter 42, verses 10 through 17. Repentance, forgiveness. Then it says, the Lord increased all that Job had twice, twofold. All his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him and they ate bread with him in his house. They consoled him, they comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him, adversities that God brought on him. Each one gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. He had 14,000 sheep. And of course, the numbers are doubled here from the beginning of the story. 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. So he had 10, 10 children. He lost 
those ten children have been replaced, seven sons for seven sons, three daughters for three daughters. He named the first Jemima, the second Keziah. Kezi's a kind of a neat name, isn't it, Keziah? I, I don't know any gals named that, but it's a nice name. And the third Karen Hopuk. Now, this seems a little extraneous. Why is God naming Job's daughters, none of his sons? And he tells us that not only in all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And I think the reason we have this here is for this reason. Job is receiving this overflowing grace, mercy, and abundance of restoration and blessing from God. And in a day and a time when women or young ladies or girls normally weren't part of getting their father's inheritance, these gals get the inheritance. The abundance is so great that it spills over to everyone. I think that's the point. It says, after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So, Job's restored. So he's got all the stuff. He's got the camels and the donkeys and he's got the the wealth and the servants again and he's got children again which all sounds great right and and it is it's truly good it's great in fact he has all the things that in that time of history that would have been the indication that you expected of god's favor was the good stuff but he has something better than that because he has this relationship with god that's not only been restored but it's deeper and wider than it was before. And this is the end to which all things had been going. The greatest blessing Job has is not his fortune. It's the elevated, deeper, wider relationship and knowledge of God he has. You know, we tend to focus on the stuff. Do you remember in all three synoptic gospels, Jesus warns, what does it profit you if you gain all the stuff in the world but lose your soul? That is, your relationship with God is of greater importance than anything else you can have on this earth. And friends, that includes your wife or your husband. It includes your children. It includes your friends. Nothing and no one can replace what God is supposed to be to us and what only God can be to us. So the greater restoration for Job is not the stuff. It's not the children. It's God himself. It's the relationship Job has with God. And that's what Jesus says in John 17, 3 that life or real life, abundant life, which is what God wanted for Job, it's what the prodigal's father wanted for his son, abundance of life is through relationship with God in Christ. And that's what Job got. So the restoration wasn't merely or primarily about the stuff he got, it was about the relationship being restored. Let me read this from uh, text called Job's Progress. This is written by Peter Lathart and Toby Sumter. This is about the conclusion of the book of Job. Job begins as a priest who offers sacrifices for his children who may have sinned. Job 1 verse 5. By the end of the story, Job not only offers sacrifices, but also prays for his three counselors, and God promises to hear him. Chapter 42 verse 8. At the beginning, Yahweh is talking with the accuser, the adversary, that heavenly courtroom scene in which God has a a conversation with the accuser, with Satan. And Job is not among the sons of God who appear before Yahweh. 
By the end, here at the end, chapter 42, the accuser is nowhere to be found, and Yahweh is speaking with Job. Job has been elevated to one who may speak to God and be assured that he will be heard. At the culmination of the story, Yahweh answers out of the whirlwind, 38.1 and 40 verse 6. In other words, the story of Job is a drawing of Job into the whirlwind. The narrative, the argument, the dialogue itself is Job's transition into the whirlwind presence of Yahweh. Heavenly conversation, everything that happens in between, Job is elevated and he has a relationship now with the living God that he didn't have before and he couldn't have had before because of his sins of pride, his willingness to diminish God and elevate himself. That's been taken care of, it's been uncovered and Job now has something that he couldn't have had before. Real repentance, real restoration and Yahweh has pulled Job into his very presence in a way Job had never known before. That's a pretty good ending. We call that a happy ending. Guys, what I'm going to do now, and I will try not to run long, I'm going to give you 12 key takeaways I have from the book of Job, and we'll run through these fairly quickly. And then I'm going to give you 10, 10 lenses by which the book of Job is meant to help us see Christ more fully. The first is this, uh, God gives and God takes away. We've said this over and over and over. And we simply mean God is sovereign. God does whatever he wants. And guys, we have no right to ever challenge what God causes or what God allows. We don't have standing to challenge the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe. We don't have a standing to challenge God our Father or Christ our Savior. It doesn't exist. God's God, we're not. He's sovereign. All his purposes are fulfilled. That's the deal, God's sovereign. Chuck Swindoll, in his book on Job, winding down near the end, says it this way, God's purpose is unfolding. I can't hinder it. God's plan is incredible. I can't comprehend it. God's reproof is reliable. I dare not ignore it. God's way is best. I must not resist it. The second is God often, and we would say more often than not, does not answer our questions as to why. Guys, all of us, our first inclination when some horrible things happens there's the hit, there's the emotional hit, and then there's the question, why is this happening? And as believers, we're, we're usually saying, God, why did you let this happen? We're trying to figure out why, 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 and more often than not, God just doesn't tell us. And that's the way that is. And God expects us to trust him. No answers to why. You remember in the whole thing, the guys want to know, the friends accuse Job of why he's being punished. He's being punished. Job's trying to figure out why this has all happened, and God never breathes a word about why. Doesn't say a thing. God's God. He does as he pleases, and he usually doesn't tell us why. Now, what we can count on, if you're a believer, Romans 8, 28 is true. God uses all things to work together for your good. So even if we're in the pit of some kind of horrible loss, by the eyes of faith, we can still say, Lord, I know you'll take this thing, and in some way I can't see now, and perhaps in some way that doesn't apply to my life on earth, You'll still take this thing, you'll turn it upside down in a way that's actually good for me. This is huge, and it's huge in our generation. We are so much creatures of comfort. God is more committed to our holiness than our happiness. Job was happy before all this suffering, but he wasn't holy in the way God wanted him to be. And God is determined to create in us the holiness of his son. God's work in you and me today 
is the transformation of our life into Christ's life, Christ formed in us. Remember in Galatians, Paul says, I'm at labor again to see Christ formed in you. You know, Colossians says, you know, what's our future hope of glory? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. God's work in us is the life of Christ being enlarged, the old carnal sinful life being diminished. So he's more concerned about our holiness than our happiness. Uh, God is perfect and can never do us wrong. We need to remember this. This is basic theology. God's holy and he's good. Psalm 119, I think it's verse 68 says, uh, God is good and he does good. God can never do anything less than good. God can never do you wrong. He can never treat you less than justly, ever. It's an impossibility. So when bad things are happening, don't go and, and blame God and say, God, you're wrong, you're unjust. It's an impossibility. We need to remember God is good and he does good. Uh, Satan hates us and tries to destroy us. Oftentimes, we're, uh, we're comfortable enough with our stuff that we're glad to sort of stay out of the spiritual fight. And that's sometimes one of Satan's tricks, too. You know, we can be destroyed just with the desire for riches, you know, and worry about wealth and tomorrow and today and other things. Satan uses everything, but we have an enemy, a real enemy. He's real opposition. He really hates us, and he'll really use anything he can to take us down. Satan hates us and will try to destroy us as he wanted to destroy Job. Sometimes friendship means silent support. You remember the best thing the three friends did was they shut up. They showed up and they shut up. They remained silent. It was just faithful presence. They didn't say a word. They were just there with Job in his silence, silently. They didn't say a word. And along with that, something that we need to be very careful of is exercising great care when speaking to someone in great loss. You remember what ended up happening for the three friends and Job's wife, people that cared about Job. What happened when they opened their mouths and spoke? Uh, Satan spoke through them. Curse God and die, Job's wife said. God's punishing you for your egregious sin, his friend said, all of which was wrong. So we've got to be very careful when we're approaching someone in the midst of their suffering and pain about what we say. God's words may hurt, but they will ultimately heal. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs says. Elihu's words cut Job. God's words cut Job. But that was the means of health. That was the surgeon's knife. It was not a destructive sword thrust. It was the surgeon's knife to bring about healing, those words that in the moment hurt. That's true for us usually as well. It's hard for us to hear criticism, isn't it? It's hard for us to be reproved or corrected. It hurts our carnal pride. We need to take those things in and say, let me think about that. Let me pray about that. Uh, repentance and forgiveness always precede restoration and blessing, as we've seen this morning in the prodigal and in Job. Uh, Job's life was characterized by peace and blessing. And, and I, I want to say two things here. The book of Job, 42 chapters long, takes in a very, very small segment of Job's life. So we know from the text that it lasts for months. Now, we don't know how many months, but it's less than a year. So let's just say it's six months long. Now it's significant that that's the six months, let's say, that God writes the book about Job. Okay, so that's significant. That's what God describes for us. But if you don't put that in the context of Job's larger life, we're missing a huge element here. So how long does Job live? So he lives 140 years after this occurred. And he'd already had fame and fortune and 10 kids before that. So he's, he's an older guy in the front end too, right? So let's just say he's 60, 80, maybe 100 years there too. Let's just say Job lived somewhere around 200 years. 
How much of Job's life is this section we've read about? It's like this. How much of Job's life is characterized by God's abundant blessing? All the rest. So you've got this brief period. I think of Psalm, you know, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The day is coming and all that weeping goes away. Almost all of Job's lengthy life on earth was nothing but abundance and joy and fellowship. This section of Job's life is minuscule. When you and I are going through something that's hard or hurtful or painful, we can remember, one, even if this is your whole life, by the way, if this is your whole life, if you're born in poverty, if you live in misery for 200 years and die and go to heaven, what is that 200 years of poverty in comparison with eternity in God's glorious presence Righteousness, peace, joy forevermore. What's that in comparison? It's nothing. It's nothing. Job's life was characterized by abundance and joy, not by that suffering. Often those who suffer most are blessed most. And you'll see this by Jesus, by the way, in the Gospels. When you talk about who in heaven, who in the future resurrection has the seats of highest honor near Jesus? Who has those, the, the highest seats of responsibility? Jesus infers in the Gospels that it's those who've suffered the most or the most closely to him. Those who suffer most are often those who are blessed most. And last, uh, God is merciful and gracious. And that's what you see that's brought up in James. When James looks back on Job's life, he says the lesson is this, the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Now these are my 10 takeaways on the manners in which God means us to see in the person of Job and in the story of Job, he means for us ultimately to see Christ. If you're in any part of the Bible and we're not seeing Jesus in some specific way, we're missing the ultimate end of God's word. It's to reveal Christ. Uh, Job was blameless. You remember righteous and blameless. Now we know he's not sinless, but he's characterized as blameless and that suffering comes on the blameless one. Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God, John 1, 29. Like Job, he's blameless, but perfectly so. In that sense, Job that gets all the suffering is a blameless character, just as Jesus is. Uh, the adversary sought to destroy Job. And of course, as you read through the gospel accounts, think of Herod trying to kill him as a boy, temptations in the wilderness, Judas the betrayer, the crucifixion and the scourging itself, all meant Satan's side of things meant to destroy Jesus as well. Uh, Job's appearance was ghastly. Do you remember when his friends showed up? They knew the guy sitting on that ash heap was Job, but they, can't, they couldn't believe that the physical features of that guy in front of them was their friend Job. If you read in Isaiah, it's the end of chapter 52, when it talks about the Messiah and his suffering, it says he's marred beyond any man. Just like Job, it's like, that's the Messiah, that's the Jesus I knew, it doesn't look like him. Same thing as Job. Job's friends misrepresented him. They twisted what his life was about and what his character was like. And especially in Jesus' trial, you see the same thing. People came up and misrepresented Jesus during his life, certainly, but you see it in spades uh, in his trials. They lied about Jesus just as Job's friends lied about him. Job's suffering wasn't for his own sin. You remember the friends keep saying, you have to have done evil in the past or this wouldn't be happening. Job was not suffering for his own sin. God never says that. Jesus suffered more than Job did and not for any sin on his own account, but for your sins and mine. 
Jesus was absolutely blameless. He was suffering because he was blameless. Suffering as our atonement. Uh, Job trusted his Redeemer. You see this in Job 19.25. It's one of the highlights of the book, really, because in all the groaning and suffering, you, you see this, this expression of faith where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And it's interesting, the Old Testament doesn't have a lot to explicitly say about resurrection and a future life. It's normally you die and you join the dead in the grave. But here Job says, I know my Redeemer lives and I will see him as he is. He's going to stand on the earth. The Messiah, the Christ will come to the earth. I'll see him in my own flesh. Job says, I know I'll be raised from the dead and I will see my Redeemer face to face. And of course, Jesus is that Redeemer. This is interesting, isn't it? Uh, at the rapture of the church, when the dead in Christ are raised, uh, Job will be raised and will see Christ face to face. His Redeemer lives. You'll see him on the earth in the future. Job became a mediator, and we know Jesus is the only mediator for us to God. So again, back to that thing where it keeps saying two times, I will accept Job. God doesn't say, I'll accept your friends. He says twice, I'll accept Job. But again, Job is standing in their stead. Guys, if you take God the Father and us and you remove Jesus, what standing do you and I have with the Holy Father? You have none. One single mediator between God and man. And guys, this is why Christians place ultimate priority in our life and ministry on the proclamation of the gospel. Somebody without Jesus has no mediator. They have no means of bridging the gap of their sin to a holy God. There's none. Jesus is our representative and we stand accepted in the Father because we stand in Christ. You take Christ as the mediator out, you and I have no standing before the Father, none whatsoever. Job was a mediator. Jesus is the ultimate mediator. Uh, Job's family increased after his suffering and Jesus' death and resurrection produced the spiritual children. You know, so Job sitting on the ash heap, it looks like he's at the end of his life. And you'd think Job's down and he's out and it's all over. And remember that for these guys, if you died without children and grandchildren, you were considered cursed. And what does the end of Job say? By the way, he has 10 more children. And it says, by the way, he sees his sons and his grandsons to the fourth generation. Is that significant? It sure is. He died an old man full of age, full of days. Because for Job, it was a posterity. It was life that came from him and continued after him that was the ultimate signal of God's blessing. And on the ash heap, it looks like Job's not going to be blessed. He's going to die just like this, no posterity. Then lo and behold, God blesses him. He's got all these children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. When Jesus dies on the cross, and you see this in Isaiah 53, it says, who can name his generation? Where's Jesus' posterity? He has none. What's his hope of, of spiritual children, children at all on the earth, after he's gone? He has none. But then you read in verses 8 through 10 that the one who didn't have any children has more children than everyone else. So when Jesus is dead, it looks like everything's over. At his resurrection, his death and resurrection is the means for all the saved of all the ages in heaven. They're the fruit of Jesus' suffering. They are from his side. God the Father's children came from Jesus' suffering, just as Job received descendants after his suffering. 
Uh, God condescended. You remember we said the conversation was occurring in heaven at the beginning of Job. God's got to come down to Job's level to have that conversation, even in the presence of a whirlwind. And the ultimate condescension of God to our level, of course, was in the incarnation and then ultimately in Jesus' crucifixion. Job's story is a happy ending. Aren't you glad? There's, there's a lot of death and suffering in your life and mine in this world and in the Bible, by the way. And here's a happy ending. I love this. Job lives happily ever after. And when he does die, he's promised resurrection and his Redeemer and life to the ages forever. Amen. And that's your story and mine. That's Christ's story. Jesus lives happily ever after with his bride in the new heaven and new earth, all his children around the Father, glory and pleasure forevermore. The river of life, the tree of life, ain't it grand? That's your future. After all that Jesus suffered, that's his future and that's your future. Hey, as we close, and I did run a little long, my apologies. I want to close with this as a prayer. This is Job 23, verse 10. By the way, I hope you got half as much out of this story as I did. This was the hardest series of teachings I've ever given and probably the most personally rewarding. Job prayed this. Job said this, God knows the way I take. God, when you've tried us, we shall come forth as gold. Lord Jesus, help us in the arms of faith to cling to you when troubles strike, when disappointments take us down. Help us to believe as Job did that our Redeemer lives and we will see him face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.